This is unstructured. Hey everybody, today I have a unique guest. Um, he is recommended from friend of the show and former guest Randall Kenneth Jones, which is way too formal for anyone who has heard the la- the Randy um, episode. So we will call him Randy, referring to him from now on, because he is an all over the place, crazy fun guy. Hopefully he's listening to this and he'll get back to me when he hears. Now, Parker, you have an extremely varied past. So I'm not even going to go into who you are because I want to use the show to explore your biography, essentially. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks so much for having me today. Now, just from the little bit I know, from what I understand, your whole trajectory may have been launched from something your high school coach said. Yeah, that's, it's a really interesting perspective, uh, because until you had mentioned it, I actually hadn't really considered it that way, but I, I think you're right on that. Basically, um, I, when I was a freshman in high school, uh, I had a couple friends and, uh, towards the end of my freshman year, my, my hair was growing long and I had, it was highlighted and I went to a summer camp and I dyed some of it green. We're trying to make it blue, but we didn't keep it in long enough. So I come back from summer camp and, uh, my, my high school friend, Bob at the time said, Parker, you gotta, you gotta come back to the light, man. You know, you used to be a cool guy. (laughs) What's going on here? And, uh, you know, high school kids, you know, they, they take judgment kind of personally. And I said, okay, fine. So he tells me to come out to, um, try out for football. And it was the beginning of my sophomore year. And I said, okay, Uh, I was a little bit nervous, uh, but I did. And, Sophomore year went, uh, it was okay. Uh, my junior year went okay playing football. And I really wasn't sure that I, I wanted to, uh, to go back, um, during my, my junior year of, of two a day practices. My mom took me to see the movie, the replacements. And it's kind of this, you know, struggle against adversity. This washed out quarterback comes back and saves the day as a replacement player in the, in the professional league. And that kind of gave me the motivation to go back to practice. Well, uh, I played the rest of my junior year. I went and I played senior year and, uh, my fourth week of my senior year, I will never forget an incident that happened where uh, I was playing kind of a defensive end position and I was making a play, uh, against our, our offense that we're running the play against. And my coach snapped at me and he goes, that's stop, do it again. And we all don't know what's going on. And he, we run it again and he throws down his clipboard and he goes, that's it, Parker. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not having it. And everybody on the team looks at him and I am in sheer terror. And he goes, you're a freaking practice player and I'm not playing you in games anymore because every week you come in here and you do it perfectly in practice. And I put you in the games and you freaking choke and I've had it. And he walked away and goes Mm. and talks to the other assistant coaches. And at this point, I've got 60 of my closest teammates all staring at me. And everybody is in disbelief. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And I will be honest with you, Eric. I was in so much shock at that moment that I don't remember what happened after that. I just remember how much it, it, it hurt and what's your do you have yeah. your was your father around do you have a good relationship with your father uh in high school my relationship with my dad was not great uh as i think mm-hmm. it just kind of happens with a lot of 
you know, up and coming teenagers who want to establish their, their dominance as, uh, as an adolescent. Um, so we had our issues, but I think that we were, we were fine, uh, overall. And about two weeks after that incident, um, I, I wasn't playing in the games and I had gone in maybe once or something like that to kind of support a, uh, mm-hmm. a, uh, an injured player briefly. And my dad walked up to my coach after the game and he said, you're, this is unfair to Parker because you're playing him in the wrong position. He's not a linebacker. He's not a defensive end. He's a defensive back. He should be playing safety and you know it. And I got berated by my coach the following week saying, you know, your dad's coming up to me after a loss and all this stuff and you can't have that. Well, lo and behold, the next week he puts me in at safety and I have two interceptions and seven tackles. So (laughs) things started to work out. But getting to uh, kind of your your overall question about how that that started to change everything is I realized at that time uh, that I, I clearly wasn't confident. And confidence was a, a, it's a really important factor in life. Now, of course, too much confidence, overconfidence is arrogance. Um, lacking confidence can lead to, of course, insecurity. And I was not secure with what I was trained to do. Uh, I was not comfortable. I, what if I get injured? What if I get hurt playing football? I don't want to let my team down. I had all of these mental battles that were going on. Mm-hmm. Well, when it comes full circle... About two summers later, I was in Air Force ROTC at Ohio State, and I was lucky and grateful to be the one person who was selected out of about 100 kids, uh, 100 freshman cadets to be able to go to the Air Force Academy for their free fall parachute school. Hmm. And it's the only school in the country where you can jump out free fall your first time without an instructor. And it's military training. The military is allowed to do this. So I, I go through all the ground training and they had me do three jumps in one day. And if you can imagine the adrenaline of one jump, one parachute jump, jumping out solo your first time from 5,000 feet above the ground. Yeah. It's not a bucket list item for me. (laughs) Uh, So, and then imagine doing it again. And then imagine doing it again in the same day. Well, on my third jump, I I came out of the plane. My body position was incorrect. So I ended up flipping. And in the video room, they had these, well, they had these telescopic video cameras that they watched you as you jumped out of the plane. And I'm in the video room and my jump instructor failed me on the jump because he said I flipped coming out of the plane, which they said was, um, you know, not part of the the procedure, even though I had kind of leveled out and I was belly to earth and I pulled my parachute safely, everything was fine. But in the end, uh, he failed me. Well, two failures out of five jumps is an automatic removal from the program. Oh, ouch. And so but now I, I have, it. it's life and death. Exactly. And I appreciate that. Um, the, the issue that I of course was running into was this issue of confidence. I I realized around this time that there were three things that you needed to be successful in doing anything. And they were motivation, preparation, and confidence. I was motivated. I wanted to be there. I was prepared. I had the same training, if not some more retraining than anybody else did. And other people were doing this at the level they should have been. And I was not, at least on that third jump. 
And I saw so back. If yeah, there sorry, were no ahead. stakes, you were solid. Mm-hmm. But as soon as stakes came about, then you had the issue. Exactly. And, and again, it was the same thing that you had mentioned about my football coach calling me out to saying you, I've Parker, I have put you in, you do this perfectly in practice, but when it comes down to game time, you choke. And this was running through my head before, you know, my fourth jump, which was done the next day. And I will never forget being in that plane, it's called a UV-18B a Twin Otter, which is a very, very typical skydiving plane. Mm-hmm. And I had this Air Force Senior Master Sergeant, which is the second highest enlisted rank that you can get. Mm-hmm. On his name patch, he had a, a couple different badges on there. One of them was a HALO badge, which stands for High Altitude Low Opening, which is basically means one thing, that he was in Air Force Special Operations, which means that he was what the job position is called a combat controller. And he's been in a lot of direct action combat. And this is guys who probably has been in firefights and probably has, uh, killed people in combat before. And now this is my jump master on my fourth jump. If I fail this jump, I go home and I go home to a hundred other ROTC cadets who know that I went to that program and I failed. Right. And in that moment, I think back to this football situation with my coach calling me a practice player in front of everybody. And I said, Parker, you're in this plane. You've got the same training. You've got the motivation to be here. You've just got to believe in your heart and in your head that you can do this. Trust the training and get it done. And it flashed before my eyes as this guy is gripping my flight suit, pointing me in the face and yelling at me to stand in the door 5,000 feet above a plateau in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I get in the door and I knew what I had to do. I checked in, I checked out, he let me go. I came out of the plane. I leveled out perfectly. I pulled my parachute and I got to the ground safely. So you nailed it. I nailed it. And back in the video room, all he did, he was kind of this grizzled guy. And he looks at me and he takes out the video from the, cause this old VCR, this is 2003, takes the, the tape out of the VCR, hands it to me and he goes, good jump, go schedule five which was my <laughs> fifth and final jump, um, which I also did perfectly. And that was the start of something great and grand in my life where I finally knew what the three things to success were. And it was motivation, preparation, and confidence. That's awesome. Your third jump was your best jump then. Uh, third, third jump was, that was the one that I'd failed, but fourth exactly. jump. That's why um, it's your best. Uh, yeah, I see what you mean there. I see what you mean. It it reset you, it and did. it gave you the stakes to overcome whatever was blocking you. So what? And I want to dig in that moment, if you don't mind. Sure. What is it that was different? What is it that clicked in your head to say, "I'm going forward"? Did you just throw it all away and just say, "I'm going through the motions," or how did you do it? So after my, my third jump, um, I, in which I was again, given the, the failure, there was a three point rating system and, uh, I had, uh, there was kind of a pass, a marginal, which was still a pass and then a failure. And I was given a failure. I, I went up to the head jump master whose uh, name was uh, staff sergeant Thompson and staff sergeant Thompson. I, you know, I, I only flipped once, but you, I did what you told me to do. When I, when you flip, you, you arch your body, you level out, you, 
then you pull your, you do your pull sequence. And he said, Parker, I agree with you. You did what you asked us to do under that sort of distress, but I have to go with what the jump master on your jump rated you. So I had to do about two and a half hours of ground training that light that night. And Eric, I was furious because I, I didn't feel like I had failed. Uh, mm. I, I didn't feel like I was dangerous in the air. I, I felt like the training kicked in, in that moment and I did it. So I'm going through this retraining and, and I'm just, I'm angry about it. I was at dinner that night with some of the other cadets that I had met there. And I remember not being able to focus on eating because I just remembered Parker, bring your arms down. Um, and that was the issue is I brought my arms up way too quickly. Kind of the relative wind hit me and that's what flipped me. And I knew that if I just brought my arms down and kept them there for two or three seconds, I could do it. And we get back from dinner and we're back in our, our rooms that night. And I'm practicing in the door of my room. So I can do this in the morning and I'm up till probably 1130 or 12 o'clock, knowing that I've got to wake up in about four or five hours to be able to go and jump first thing in the morning. And I, I just kept going through my brain of bring my arms down. That's the training, pin them down, trust the training. It's there. It's there for my safety. It's there for my perfection. And when I woke up that morning, the next day, I remember I went through the same motions again. And if I can show you that video, I've got it on YouTube. You see me, I exit that plane and my arms are pinned to the sides of my legs because I know if I just keep them there, I'm not going to flip. I'm going to level out and this is going to be a successful jump. I will get my wings pinned after my fifth jump and I will go home and be able to show my grandfather, the Air Force veteran that I've got a set of aeronautical wings, just like he had, I get to go back to ROTC to those hundred, 150 cadets that we had, most of whom had joined right after, you know, the first year after nine 11, who wanted to go and, and, um, you know, get after the bad guys who, who, who hit us on, on nine 11. And I get to show them, yeah, I've got wings. I'm 19 years old, but I've got these already. And it was, so it was a badge of pride. It was a badge of honor and it was a badge of confidence. So essentially you visualized your success. Yes. Which I think is, is key. I think, you know, if you, if you, there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of literature out there, uh, you know, visualize doing what you want to do and, and it can be so, and you're exactly right. That's what I did. It was in my brain, but I also, I mean, I literally, Eric, I was at dinner with these guys and I was slapping my hands on my on my thighs and I was starting to get these small bruises on there. And my, my friend, Stephanie, uh, at the time who was in the, the class, she said, Parker, you can relax. I said, I can't relax. I can't relax. If I have one, if I do that again, I am out of here. Right. But the key thing is you visualized the success, mm-hmm. not the mishap. Exactly. And reason why this is important is because if I tell you don't spill the milk, I'm borrowing this from a previous guest, Dave Freeze. When crossing the room, you are automatically visualizing spilling it just because of my statement. That's right. You have to visualize, hold the milk steady as you carry it across the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's, that's the whole point important. of like uh, positive versus negative psychology, right? Is, is what, what do you, what do you focus on that makes people really good instead of focusing on what makes people bad? 
And again, what you're, I agree with what you're saying is let's focus on what we want to have happen, not on what we don't want to have happen. Exactly. And ironically on the third jump, I think you may have visualized wrong, but visualized pulling out of it as you were describing to the other jump master. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I can tell you, you know, I've watched the video a number of times when I was in the process of writing my book and, and describing how impactful this, this skydiving experience was. And I watched myself in the plane and I can describe for you how you wanted, you wanted it to be. Imagine the, the door of a plane uh, on the side. So I'm not jumping out the back. I'm jumping out of the side mm-hmm. and it's toward the back left of the plane. So there is a wing and a propeller in front of me. The idea was you would line up your feet basically on the edge of the fuselage. You'd have your right arm inside the fuselage and your left arm outside. The jump master would hold on to your left, uh, waist strap, um, to kind of help keep you in the plane. So you didn't just fall out. Once you did the check-in process, the idea was to get your right knee outside the fuselage and push your hips forward, almost like you're arching your body before you even leave the plane. As you're going through the checkout process, you push your hips forward and you bring your hands up from the fuselage down to your side and you arch your body forward. Now, what that does is it allows the relative wind, which of course is coming across the plane to hit your body. Well, if you have more mass, more surface area towards the the bottom part of your body, towards your legs, the wind is going to basically balance you out. And then you're going to go from, uh, uh, basically, uh, a position of against the relative wind down to a belly to earth position. And that's when you slowly start to transition your arms up to your side and it works perfect. We watch some of these jump masters do it and they do it beautifully. My problem on that jump was that I was, my hips were back. I was kind of leaning forward. And at that point, it's very difficult to kind of have this, this arch position and bring your hands down when you exit the plane. And I basically brought my arms up too quickly. I flipped once or twice. The training kicked in. I arched my body and I leveled out. And then I started my pull sequence. To me, the biggest lesson I take away from that is having the self-awareness to know how fatigue and how adrenaline impact you to make sure that you're getting back to the basics. And I'm not saying that other 19 year olds out there should have this heightened sense of self-awareness. I I don't think I could have had it at that time, but being able to understand, wow, I am really, really tired. I've been through two skydives, never having done it before. Mm -hmm. What do I need to be hypersensitive and hyper aware of when I'm in the plane the next time to make sure that this jump goes like the first two. Right. You overthought it. Now, after this, you succeeded. What happened next in your career? So I, I went back to um, ROTC and I had a, a head full of steam. And my goal was to be a pilot in the Air Force. Uh, my grandfather had been a navigator in uh, B-47s and uh, KC-135s um, and had been to Vietnam. And there was just something about his career that I wanted to do. I wanted to be in a plane and I wanted to fly fighter jets. 
So I get back from my sophomore year and and things went really well. I actually earned a 4.0 grade point average the whole year. I was getting more honors and awards. I I went to our kind of basic officer training that summer and I finished in the top 20% of my group and everything was going well. Junior year, I submit for pilot training and um, I get it. And March 11th, 2005, I will never forget. I got a phone call from one of the ROTC commanders, a guy named Bud Zinni, who was a major. It's about 8.30 in the morning. It was a Friday. And he said, Parker, good morning. This is Major Bud Zinni. Please give me a call. Uh, when you get a chance, we got the aeronautical results in, and you were selected for pilot training. Nice. And it was, Eric, it was one of the greatest days of my life because I had worked so hard to get that, right? I was a mediocre high school student. Um and being in ROTC and at Ohio State, I had a three seven three eight GPA, and I had a I had earned a scholarship my freshman year, and and now I'd been selected to go to pilot training in the world's greatest Air Force. I, I was I was elated, and I remember calling my grandfather and telling him, and, and just how excited he was for me, and how excited he was to tell everybody that I was I was going to go to pilot training. Wow, and. I remember that summer in 2005, I went to South Carolina. There's an Air Force base down there. And I had the opportunity to sit in the back seat of F-16s um, and fly around uh, with these, these Air Force pilots who I wanted to be like. And I, you know, we pulled eight and a half Gs and I, you know, I didn't, I didn't puke in the plane, which is like only, you know, like nine out of 10 people do it. And I said, oh my God, I haven't even done this and, and I feel so good. And, and this is everything I want it to be, except that it wasn't. Oh, what happened? When I got back to school in September of 2005, all of my fellow pilot navigator training selectees had received their medical clearance paperwork, but I hadn't. And I talked with our non-commissioned officer in charge, a guy by the name of Todd Fuel, who was a master sergeant. And he told me that the Air Force was concerned about some uh, prescription cream that I was using on my face. So the Air Force had me go to a dermatologist and kind of get diagnosed and everything. And he diagnosed me with uh, dermatitis on my nose and on my forehead. Huh. Uh, he said I didn't need the, the prescription cream. I could just use some over-the-counter stuff. Right. But and that would be a problem with the helmet, I'm guessing. That's, that's what they, yeah, that's what they had said. Um, despite the fact, of course, that I had already, you know, flown in F-16 and, you know, everything was fine. So this was October 13th, 2005. It was a Thursday. And that weekend was really difficult for me. I went to a campsite north of Columbus and I just kind of, I cried because everyone else had their goals and, and I, I wasn't sure about my future anymore. The Air Force said they had 45 days to come back and kind of render their decision. And they didn't take 45. They took seven. Yeah. And when they come up with a no, they never go to a yes. It's, it's difficult yeah. to do that. Um, it's just easier to say no. They're yeah. never going to get in trouble for saying you're out. Exactly. So October 20th, 2005, um, I woke up and I kind of knew my intuition was going off that something was going to happen that day. 
And at 2.32 in the afternoon, the Air Force colonel pulls me in to his office. And he sits me down. And there were two other people in the room. Uh, my ROTC instructor, a guy by the name of Rod Carraway, and Sergeant Fuel were sitting there. And I sat between them on this couch. And I looked at Colonel Hune. And he said, Parker, the Air Force is on account of your skin condition, decided to discharge you. From this point on, you'll no longer attend these various ROTC functions. You can finish the academic portion of the class at your discretion. Sorry. So they at least paid for the rest of your school? Not the rest of my senior year. Um, That scholarship, everything stopped. Oh, how nice. I was was completely discharged. Uh, I was not going to pilot training. I was not going to do anything in the air force. I was never going to wear the air force uniform again. Wow. That is why October 20th, 2005 was the worst day of my life. Everything I had worked for, for years came crashing down. And to give your listeners an explanation of why, uh, the air force at this time had too many people. And they needed to get rid of people. Um, they, they were doing something called force shaping where they mm-hmm. shape the force for the future by limiting enrollments and enlistments and officer commissions and that sort of They're thing. They're really sweet terms, aren't they? Like downsizing exactly. and right sizing. And <laughs> yeah, we come up with different terms to help say we're canning a bunch of people. Yeah. And, and that's what it was is in a sense I got canned and I will never forget. Basically I, as he's telling me this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the verge of, of breaking down. I'm going to, I know I'm going to sob uncontrollably. I need to get out of there. So I just, I get up, I walk towards the stairwell in Converse hall, which is the ROTC building on, on Ohio state's campus. And I see two of my friends coming up. One of my best friends today, Andrew Galusha, who's a, a doctor, a surgeon in the air force. He sees me in the stairwell and he said, Hey man, what happened? And I, the only words I could get out is I just said, it's not good. And I went down the stairwell and I crossed the street and I found a bench and I broke down and I, I bawled, uh, until I had no more tears left because everything I had worked for was gone. And if to make matters worse, I had to tell my grandfather Hmm. that he could no longer commission me in the air force. Wow. And that was the hardest phone call I've ever had to make. I couldn't even get the words out. Um, and at the end of the phone call, I just told him that I was sorry because so I you knew hit bottom. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. How did you start climbing out? I recognized that even at this point in life, that there, there was a grief cycle. I didn't, I wasn't aware of it as much as I am now and and was in my later twenties. So I decided that, uh, you know, I would try and rebut it. I, I did, it didn't go anywhere. And so I joined the, the, I talked to the air force colonel who basically said, you know, maybe there's still another way to commission. So we talked to the army and we talked to the Navy and Marines and I, the Navy was filled up and the Marines had their thing. And, but the army said, skin condition, what, you know, we're letting in people with DUIs come on in. 
because this is when the Iraq war was getting really bad. So army enlistments and commissions were, were going down. So they really needed people. So I actually joined the army ROTC program at Ohio state for a couple months. I actually disenrolled from that because I really didn't like how the army treated its people. And I didn't like how they treated me. Uh, I, I didn't, I don't want to sound entitled, but I I felt like I deserved a little bit more than what they were giving me. I wanted to know what job I was going to do in the, in the army. I wanted to know what training I was going to go to. And they said, no, you need to come in this program, graduate. Then we're going to send you to seven more weeks of basic training. And then we'll tell you what your job is. I said, I'm not, I'm not joining. I'm not commissioning. And then you tell me what my job is. That just seems crazy to me because in, in prior to that, any ROTC unit, you'd already be selected for your job basically by the time your senior year came around. So I said, this is crazy. I'm not, I'm not doing this. So I disenrolled from the program. So now it's April of 2006. I have two week, two months until I graduate. And I said, I, I need to get a job. And I, I took a job, I acquired a job, I should say, as a financial advisor. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to pull myself up. And the support of my friends, Andrew and Jason, um, after that incident happened were critical. The support of my family was critical. My grandparents, the day after I was discharged, drove up from Gaithersburg, Maryland to Columbus, Ohio to spend the weekend with me Mm -hmm. and having that family support was critical to getting me to the place where I knew that I would be okay. Um, and I couldn't have done it without them. So the best part I think of, of being young is, is you kind of have this resilience that I don't think I was very aware of at the time, but I had it where I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to stop. I'm, I'm going to make something of myself, whatever it is. If this option is not there, I'm going to keep going. And that's when I, I took a job as a, a financial advisor. I remember a conversation I had with my mom where I, she said, Parker, you've, you've been in and out of two military branches in six months. Why don't you just come home, figure it out. You can go from there. I said, mom, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be some bum. And just come and live at home. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to do this. Cool. Now I know you're a financial advisor for a while, but they're, you're kind of burying the lead here and I definitely want to get to it. CIA. Mm-hmm. Um, WTF. <laughs> so the, the reason I, I was interested in working in intelligence is because my grandfather had worked in intelligence and I always viewed him as, as kind of my, my number one hero a guy who grew up dirt poor in Brooklyn with a mother who didn't work and a father figure who was never around. And if he was around, uh, he gambled away any money that he did have. So my, my grandfather in effect took the, the role of the adult responsibility in the family at a very young age. He, uh, enlisted in the air force, uh, in, uh, the early fifties during the Korean war, uh, was selected for navigator training, became a commissioned officer spent 20 years. And after his air force career, he joined intelligence. He worked at something called the national pictographic interpretation center, uh, looking at uh, imagery analysis 
And he, he worked at the Pentagon. He worked at CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency. And I just thought that I would do the same thing. After my Air Force career, I would join intelligence. Not that so I knew what it was. About, how did you go about joining the CIA? So um, I... I, I found, uh, you know, going to CIA.gov, I, I found the application um, on the website and I decided to submit an application uh, about two months after I started working as a financial advisor. And the reason I did that is because when you work a commission job, it, you have some really great highs and you have some really great lows. And during one of those troughs, I realized that there were three things that made people kind of happy and complacent in their lives. The first one is having a job that you like. The second was living in an area that you liked living in. And third was having friends and family around. If you have two of those three things, you can be you can be happy overall on a general basis. If you can have three, then you're all three, then you're, you're in the perfect situation. I realized that I only had one. I had a job I liked. The problem is, is I didn't like living in a suburb of Cleveland. I, I didn't have any friends and family around. I worked all the time. And although I liked my job, that was it. So when things got really tough, I applied to CIA on its website to be a military analyst because I was a military history major in college. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And, uh, about three weeks later, I got an email and a phone call that they wanted to interview me. I did the interview. I think it went well. And, uh, I started about seven months after that. I, I started working in, uh, July, 2007 as a military analyst at the CIA. Nice. Okay. So you're an analyst then not a, um, operative. Correct. Correct. I was okay. not an, I was not a, what we used to call back in the day, a case officer or an operations officer, one of our folks that goes overseas and, uh, gathers intelligence. I was the one back here in the DC area who was reading all of the intelligence and, uh, analyzing it and writing about it, whether it was writing for the president or writing for the national security council or other policymakers, things like that. Now, how long were you, um, in the CIA? Uh, so I was there from 2007 to 2011, uh, when I took a little bit of a respite, uh, and worked for the state department. Uh, I spent a year in Iraq, um, from 2011 to 2012. Uh, and I actually went back to CIA in 2014. Okay. So you were at CIA now? Yes, correct. Oh, okay. So obviously you can't talk about much there. Oh, I can talk <laughs> a lot more than people think I can, <laughs> especially because I've, uh, in the process of getting my book published, you have to go through something called the pre-publication review board, mm -hmm. uh, which basically there's a group of people who review anything you want to publish or put out there for, uh, making sure that there's no classified information or things that could damage the agency, something like that. So the fact that, um, I've put my book, which contains stories about CIA through that review process. All mm -hmm. I'm doing with you now is just talking about everything that's already been pre-approved. I could talk a, a lot more about it than, uh, than some people think. Let me give you one, uh, one little piece of kind of connective tissue. You know, a lot of people might, might ask at this point, what, what happened with that, that military desire, right? Did that ever work out? Mm -hmm. Well, interestingly enough, uh, about four months after I started working at CIA, I met a, a guy who is a manager in my office, who is a Navy reserve captain. And 
I was telling him this story and I, I kind of got choked up because I usually do every time I, I tell the story just because it still impacts me so much. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, Parker, if you're really interested in, in still joining the military, the Navy has this program called the direct commission program in which they take civilians with applicable skills that the Navy could use. And they basically go through a a review process and you commission on the spot and you enter the field in which you have that expertise. Well, I said, I'm I'm working intelligence now. I've got this intelligence expertise. Maybe I could be an intel officer in the Navy. And so I started that process and I talked with a recruiter and I, I went in and I submitted my application to a board and they reviewed it. And I went through the medical processing and that's when people might be like, wait a minute, Parker, you already, you already got screwed. Why are you doing this again? Mm-hmm. One of the lessons I learned from my air force situation was that I willingly told them that I used this prescription cream. And that's in the fact what got me removed from the air force. Right. So I said this time, the lesson I've learned is that integrity is different than honesty. Mm-hmm. the decision of integrity at this point is that I really want to serve my country and I am fit to do so. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to disclose this information about this cream that I use. I'm going to let them find out on their own. Well, went through the medical processing, the Navy came back and they said, Hey, we've heard about this discharge. What happened with this? I said, Oh, it was a little skin thing a, a long time ago, but it's cleared up. They had me go to a doctor. I didn't go to a dermatologist. I actually went to an internal medicine doctor who mm-hmm. wrote me up and said everything was fine. And long story short, the Navy decided to let me commission. So August 11th, 2009, I finally put my hand up and swore in to the United States Navy Reserve as an ensign with my grandfather standing across from me having done the commissioning cool. ceremony. So you got there. I did. I That's did. actually that's a perfect full circle and really almost an amazing place to wrap up. Let's first off talk about your book for a quick second so sure. we can get a plug in. What is the name of it and what is the basic um, premise? Sure. The The book is called Get After It, Seven Inspirational Stories to Find Your Inner Strength When It Matters Most. And the premise is that it's seven true stories from my life. Uh, everything from this commissioning story to the the story about learning what confidence was in jump school, the lessons I learned as a financial advisor in Cleveland. But I also have a story where I talk about how I was a a bit of an ass when I was in Afghanistan in 2008 on behalf of CIA. And I kind of ruined some relationships with our military counterparts. I also have a story about my, I'm a musician as well. So I talk about my musical growth and the lessons I've learned through that. Uh, I've used to speak Arabic, not great, but well enough. And the lessons I learned from studying another language and how they're applicable to, to everyday life. And the last story is a story about wanting to work in one particular office in the CIA, something I wanted to do since 2008 and how I actually accomplished that goal last summer. So it took me nine years to get there. Um, Wow. Now, essentially everyone can see now that I have barely scratched the surface. So if you guys want to hear more, get the book. Yeah. <laughs> and I appreciate that. It's uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, there's an ebook version. There's a paperback version. There's uh, It's on Barnes & Noble, Google. Everything's out there. Um, and uh, I'd love if anybody would check it out. 
Now, if people want to reach you directly, um, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. So I, I've got my website. It's uh, www.parkershaffle.com. It's P-A-R-K-E-R. Last name is S-C-H-A-F-F-E-L.com. Um, my email uh, is parker at parkershaffle.com. And uh, if anybody's out there, if you have questions about the book or feedback, uh, or if you think that there's stuff that we can work on together, I, I would love to. Um, I I work part-time uh, at CI. I work three days a week. So that allows Mondays and Fridays to, to work on some other projects and, and help spread good words and good stories to good people. Because like I said in, uh, in a previous conversation, uh, as you mentioned with Randy, you know, to me, we've got to share our stories because if we don't share our stories, then they will die with us. And the only way, in my opinion, that we can get future generations to make better decisions than we did is by sharing those stories and having a self-aware perspective of the lessons that we learned. Perfect wisdom there. Hey, thank you so much for coming on, man. Eric, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown. Shut up and sit down. Hey, it's Sarge. And Frenzy. From the Sarge Approved Podcast. Uh, If you're not familiar... The Sarge Approved Podcast has a guest every episode featuring uh, people like actors, comedians, uh, survival experts, authors, martial arts experts, basically a whole gamut of badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Spreaker, uh, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, and you can check us out on all our social media, Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, all the things. It's all at Sarge Approved. Yep. Check it out, and we hope you enjoy it. Bye.